Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? Early in the morning, when the dew is on, each and every rosebud, you will find me gone. So knock me down and pick me up and knock me down again. Break my heart, steal my gold, and slander my good name. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Maryville, Tennessee, and a musician in his own right, Will Kruger. Will, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I listen to many, many episodes, so it's a real honor. Well, the pleasure is mine, and thank you very much for saying so. So I always open with the question to all my guests, same question. How did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? Well, I started playing guitar about 1965. I was 14 years old, and I think Peter, Paul, and Mary were really on my radar at the time. And one of the songs from See What Tomorrow Brings, which came out about that year, that album, they had the Early Morning Rain on. And that's, I think, the first inkling I got about Gordon Lightfoot. And I think I started investigating and I bought uh, the original Lightfoot album in mono, by the way, wasn't even in stereo. Uh, So that was uh, my introduction to Gordon. And of course, uh, my voice range works really well with him. So I started doing a lot of cover songs. Makes perfect sense. Good. What do you like about Lightfoot's music generally? Well, you know, I'm a songwriter myself, and I always emphasize melody. The lyrics are great, but if you don't have a good melody to kind of draw you in to listen to the lyrics, and Gord was a master at that. Every song, you knew exactly what the song was by the intro. Nothing was the same. It varied. And, you know, later on when I started getting to know a little bit about his background, he had quite a classical background. He took a lot of a lot of emphasis on his lyric writing and, and the melody and that type of stuff. And his uh, his music was just great. Yeah, he's one of the few contemporary artists who actually writes his own charts. That's a point that I've made in other episodes. I don't yeah. know about too many other modern musicians who actually still do that and maybe it's a lost art i don't know we just we just write chords right yeah right and the melodies we just they kind of stick in our head and you know if we ever want anybody to publish them then you know we get somebody to transcribe them but most people these days just can't do that um what about live performances what's your been your experience with seeing well, i've live? only had the pleasure to be at two of gord's uh, live performances one was at the opera house in Chicago, and then there was a uh, 
can't remember the name of it. It was another club outside of uh, Chicago. They had a round stage at the time. And uh, the first one I went with my cousin, because I, I think I was, that was probably, gosh, it had to be like 69, 70 when I saw. Oh, I remember it was just when uh, uh, Sit Down Young Stranger, and you know what album I'm talking about. They ended up changing the name. It, so he had just uh, joined Reprise Records, which was a new company started, I believe, by Frank Sinatra. And uh, that album had just come out. And so first time I heard If You Could Read My Mind was at that concert. So you were there uh, to see him a couple of times. Have you ever met him? No, I never have. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nor have I. Um, all right. Well, let's get into the song a little bit. You and I talked about the origins of the song a little bit before we started recording. We'll talk about that in a minute or two. Yeah. The reason that I love this song so much is that it is so simple, but it's so perfect. He sometimes uses more sophisticated language in his writing than he did in this particular song, but this just lays it out. He's not trying to show off his mastery of vocabulary. It's a lament, it's a poem, it's pure folk music, and there's not a misplaced word or a misplaced note anywhere in the song. And the fact that he was that skillful at it on his very first album, because this album was recorded in 1964, yes. um, it's his first recording, and he's already mastered the genre so much that it just absolutely blows me away. Interesting, too, because I and correct me if I'm wrong, this, this was the days before Red Shea and uh, Pee Wee Charles. I don't know if he had his bandmates then because it was like his first recording with United Artists, right? Well, they did not play on this record. No, uh, we're going to talk about who actually played on it, you know, a little bit later. I don't know if he had started working with Red and with John Stockfish at that point. John was the yes. original bass player before he turned it over to Rick Haynes. So I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm, I think it probably wasn't too far along you before know, that I, happened. I love the song. It had a kind of a bouncy feel to it. And it was just a good, fun song to play. And I've heard it many, many times. And I remember I was listening to the United Artists Collection, and that came up. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do a good cover song to it. So in anticipation to this interview, I go, well, I better find out the background. Because on your episodes, you're always going back to the origins of stuff. And you and I had talked about this before. I couldn't find anything exactly what it was and you had mentioned it was around the time that he wrote steel rail blues right so it was in that kind of a genre but what a great album that was remember the song oh linda it was just a stand-up bass that mm -hmm. was all that was in the song i mean there were some really good jewels in that particular album yeah and at some point i'd love to do a show just about that album where i get you know a whole bunch of people on a panel Getting back to you, though, and your connection to the song, why did you want to talk about it today in particular? Well, I I like Gordon Lightfoot. I like talking with other people that know a lot about that artist, and we have a lot in common in that. I just love the song. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to learn that song. And I've done that with many Gordon Lightfoot songs, you know, Song for a Winter's Night, Don Quixote, Edmund Fitzgerald, Canadian Railroad Trilogy. I cover that. Incidentally, I do uh, 
what I call a folk legend tribute show. And I include not only Gore's music, but James Taylor, John Denver, and Simon and Garfunkel. And those. So those kind of songs I like to preview in my show. I can do them solo, but if I get a chance and there's enough money in the show, I can actually get a band together and really do it justice. Fantastic. And it's always good just to talk about a song you know, that we absolutely love, and particularly if you've done your own rendition of it. What to you would be the best setting for listening to this song? Would it be at a certain time of day, a certain location, doing something? What do you think? Well, uh, you know, Michael, I guess nowadays when you I get a chance to listen to the music, you know, years ago, we'd buy a big stereo system, a rack system, and we'd have these big speakers and we'd sit back in our chair and we'd listen to music. But if you think about it, most of the time, at least for me, is when I'm in the car. You know, that's when I listen. That's when I probably listen to most of the stuff. And we had recently moved down uh, to Maryville, Tennessee, which is just on the east side of the Smoky Mountains. We're like about 50 minutes away. So I could look out my window and I can see the mountains. And so uh, I was just doing this the other day. I was uh, out, out on my deck and listening to the song and just kind of immersing myself. So I guess the answer to your question, any place is good to listen to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, I agree with you. I think if I could set the perfect scene for myself, it would be waking up by Lake Tahoe, uh, right near the Sierra Nevadas, looking yeah. at the Sierras and, you know, just listening to that because that's the setting really of at least the latter part of the song where he's going up into the mountains to get away from a memory or getting away from anything else. Now, it mentioned seven, uh, seven miles to seven lakes way up among the pines in some hidden valley where the Torlan River twines. What a great lyric right there. I mean, just, just a play of words. Uh, but I was trying to find where Seven Lakes was. And I there's a Seven Lakes area in New York, in upper New York. But in doing my research, I think it's a, it's a place where you have to fly in to go fishing. Is that Do you know at all? where that might be geographically? Well, I know where he was heading when he wrote the song. He was going up to a place in northern Ontario called Musoni, um, which is uh, way out there. I mean, it's uh, I don't even think it was be it was a census distinctive place until fairly recently. Um, and there are a whole lot of small bodies of water around um i think it's right on hudson bay okay. uh, which of course is a salt water you know area and it's not a lake in the typical sense but um, when, I think, when i think of canada though i think every place in canada is way out there yeah quite a few of them are that's true <laughs> there are quite a few small areas but i don't even know if they'd be called lakes um but and I don't know what the significance of the 16 miles is, except that maybe he kind of did a radius of where Musoni was and said, OK, well, within 16 miles, there are seven bodies of water that might be called lakes. And a lot of times, Mike, is, is uh, sometimes when we're writing songs, 16 miles just fits in the lyric. It has nothing to do with the reality of where he's going. A lot of times, uh, sometimes you look at uh, songs and you go, what was the meaning of that? Well, lyrically, it just fit the song, you know, sometimes. 
It could be. I mean, the other one that I think of is, you know, 16 tons, and that may have had, you know, Tennessee Ernie Ford may have had some significance of that, but that's neither here nor there. We'll be right back to our conversation with Will Kruger about 16 miles to Seven Lakes. But first, let's do a little business. Attention listeners, the oldest record store in Toronto wants to buy your record collection. Cops Records is run by and for collectors. They know just how much heart goes into compiling your favorite music. Whether the vinyl belongs to you, a loved one, or a friend, they'll bring their 40 years of experience and sensitivity to every transaction. If you're thinking of selling a collection, visit Cops Records, that's cops with a K, records.ca, or call them at 647-347-0095. You can also visit Cops at one of their three locations in the Toronto area. The world at war. Two lives in the balance. Who will live to see another day? The leader of the free world or a man falsely accused of treason? In this new dramatic audio series, A Date with Death, Helen Meeker has to make that choice and time is running out. Assigned to exposing an espionage ring operating on American and British soil, Helen must outwit bank robbers, avoid booby traps, and even have dinner with a dead man. When the date with death is over, who's picking up the check? Ace Collins' best-selling World War II novella, A Date with Death, comes to life in this production by the Long Highway Players. Available on Acast and coming soon to a podcast feed near you, A Date with Death is a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. Yeah, you were talking about the relative lack of information about this song. And one of the things that I thought of, okay, is that it's an album cut from his first album on his old label. And it's an album that is almost 60 years old at this point. So it's not that it's, it's not that it's not a beautiful song and a masterfully written song. It, I think it has just gotten lost in the plethora of other great songs and better selling songs uh, from Lightfoot's uh, catalog. And then the other thing is that this album didn't chart. So it wasn't that it wasn't a great album. It just sort of faded in the public eye as Gordon started to get more commercially successful. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I I was going to say, because we had talked about this a little earlier if I recall, his recording session wasn't the most fun he'd ever done. I guess the engineer could care less, and there was a lot of feedback going on, and I think they had to redo some things in the album. But again, it was his first foray into uh, more professionalism and getting his first album done. Yeah, John Court, I think, was the producer of that. And yes. I did read the liner notes and I was looking for something more specific to the song. I haven't listened to the whole album continuously, but I didn't find any sonic problems with that particular song when I listened to it. Not on that song. There were other songs in there. That I was talking in general the whole recording session. It just wasn't a pleasant experience from what I 
recall, but I may be off on that. I'm talking like 40 years ago. I remember reading it. So it's been a while. Well, what now you've sparked my interest. So maybe at the end of this season, I'll get a few people together to talk about that particular album and you're going to be on that panel. So right on. Thanks. Well, let's talk about the lyrics a little bit. Early in the morning, when the dew is on, each and every rosebud, you will find me gone. And I love the way the lyrics flowed there from line to line. He wasn't finished with a thought and then moving on to the next one. It was continuous in those stanzas. And then I love the irony where it says, you will find me gone. And I'm just thinking, uh, that's kind of like turned up missing. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Well, there was another lady that did record 16 miles and she used the lyric flower instead of rosebud which i found kind of interesting another thing about gordon gordon wrote a lot of about his failed relationships yes he did and that's a musician on the road that's part of the challenges that a musician on the road faces john denver faced that that's why his love of his life annie that didn't last too long It's a rewarding profession, but it does have its challenges, too. No doubt. And we'll talk about the cover artists a little bit later on, too, who actually did that. So knock me down and pick me up and knock me down again. Break my heart, steal my gold, and slander my good name. And I'm wondering if the person he's talking about has actually done all that stuff to him, because it feels like he's piling on blue suede shoes you can knock me down spit in my face blah 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 yeah that's true and that wasn't too long before that came out i mean you're talking 64 so you know sometimes i listen to this and it's it's his master at writing lyrics knock me down and spit me out or what it it rolls off the tongue and if you're trying to fit words in a particular melody it works so yeah i'm sure he has his experiences whether it was physical or it was mental he could be talking about some mental depression that he had at the time. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that is part of being a professional artist, to take your feelings and express them, because art is the product of human emotion to some degree or another. But I also think that he may have been just emphasizing, hey, I'm getting out of here. I'm moving to someplace new, and it doesn't matter what anybody does to me. I'm just going to continue this particular journey which we're about to talk about. Seven lonely hours on the morning train takes me to a place where I won't come back again. And I'm guessing that he had to ride on a train for seven hours to get from Toronto or Aurelia to Moosonee. Railroads in the 60s being what they are, I mean, that that's a long distance to go. Seven lonely Pullmans speeding down the line, taking me away from an old love of mine. So some sort of failed relationship, but whether it was on the road or an old girlfriend in his young years, we're not absolutely yeah. certain about. Because that's what you get for loving me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, that's one that he'll never play again. That's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He says the word seven twice in that stanza. And again, that may be, as you said, just the word that fit with the particular melody that he was writing. Seven is the number of completeness in the Hebrew Bible, but he's never been a particularly religious guy. So that may be just coincidence. So any thoughts on that? Or am I, uh, am I reading too much into this? No, I think you're not actually. I'm a strong believer in, I think uh, seven is mentioned 
a lot of times in the Bible. And growing up, that very well could be where that came from. So I don't think you're off on that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that he is a particularly religious guy or a spiritual guy, but we do know that he sang in a church choir. And so it's very possible that he got some of that through Sunday school, that idea of seven. 16 miles to seven lakes, way up among the pines, in some hidden valley where the twirling river twines. Love it. Uh, Yeah, absolutely love it. Where the fish swim up and down and the sparkling water falls, where the thunder rolls and the lonely puma calls. Now, there may have been some big cats like pumas or mountain lions in that part of Canada at the time. I don't know if they've been hunted into extinction, but they are no longer in that area. Um, They've mostly been pushed into the southeastern portion of the country now. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, from what I've been told. Somewhere on the mountain, I'll take another name, rid my mind of memories, and start my life again. And we've all felt that where you just want to walk away or run away from a whole set of bad circumstances. And if it was only that simple, if we could just say, oh, I'm just going to sail off into the sunset, you know, and start over again, which is not only unrealistic, but probably not right. And think of the imagery in that statement, what that shows you. You know, I see some mountain man, you know, all by himself in a fur coat or whatever, like the old mountain man back in the West. It evokes just such a colorful imagery, which again, Ford was really good at. And we're already kind of at the end of the lyrics. And so that says that he was able to say so much in so little time. And it was so compact musically. Somewhere, this is the last bit of it. Somewhere in the wilderness, I'll build a cabin small, then forget so I won't remember you at all. So he wants to forget this person who's hurt him, but he also wants to be alone so that he doesn't run the risk of being hurt again by anybody. The mountain man idea, okay, I'm going to go off by myself and no one is ever going to penetrate my heart again. And we hear that over and over again in modern music. But of course, you do end up coming down from the mountain and somebody does take the arrow out of your heart. You know, another interesting thing at this point, and this is something songwriters do, to build a cabin, then forget so I won't remember you at all. It's kind of like a ping pong lyric. You know, it says, again, I keep saying this, he was just a wonderful songwriter, period. Again, that he was doing this at the age that he was. I think he was 25 when he was writing this. Okay. And that the mastery of it is just amazing. Why this album didn't chart, I think, says more about the promotion that United Artists gave for it. I don't have a whole lot of background on the album itself, but it it got great reviews. It just didn't sell. Well, wasn't Ian and Sylvia? I mean, Ian and Sylvia were like the big duo from Canada at that time, what I remember back in the 60s. And I think they titled an album, Early Morning Rain. So they were doing a lot of that stuff. And Gordon wasn't that well known, but they were, and they may have covered it. I don't know. But if they had covered it, maybe uh, that song would have been more popular. But they seemed to be the dynamic duo at the time from Canada. Well, yeah, they did Early Morning Rain, which made him some money and got him a little bit of attention. Marty Robbins had a number one hit with Ribbon of Darkness around the same time. Yeah. But this album itself, who knows? Why it doesn't. It wasn't that Gordon's talent wasn't being recognized. It's just that that record 
didn't chart. There was no statistics on an American release that was just said, well, it didn't chart in Canada. And so you can extrapolate and say, OK, it didn't chart anyplace else either. We'll be right back to our conversation with Will Kruger about 16 miles to seven lakes. But first, let's do a little business. Victorian Periodical Parade. Hey, this is our new podcast. We're going to make this podcast. It's going to be Victorian. It's going to be new. It's going to be us reading and then breaking it down in the same episode. Be excited. Listen to these horror stories that are actually going to be similar to your life today. This is the transition episode where we go from YouTube, Facebook into the podcast. This is what we're planning on doing. We have content already. Go ahead and watch, listen on YouTube and Facebook. Um, but now it's pretty much just audio only. So we're going to bring it to you in an audio format. And uh, here it is. We're going to nar narrate a book and then we're going to break it down into the things that you have learned about the Victorian era and then the, the crossover between the Victorian era, everyday life to the 21st century everyday life, right? Victorian Periodical Parade. Victorian Periodical Parade. Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, the Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Let me ask you a question. What was the first album that came out that did chart from you? It was not the way I feel. I think it might have been back here on Earth. I'm going to have to check that. Maybe some of someone who's listening could clue us in on that. Because I had bought the life that was my first album and then i got sunday concert mm -hmm. and that was my second gordon lightfoot album and you think about the progression of his writing from lightfoot to sunday concert he had a live version of canadian railroad trilogy and beautiful and i mean there was just a lot of songs on that album and i think that's what really solidified my love for gordon's music was at that point and that's a good way to get a solidified you know love and respect for the man's music who's through those yeah. albums well the song did appear on lightfoot that was his first original album it was recorded in 1964 but not released until 1966 this was the ninth song on the record if you're counting from rich man's spiritual which was the very first cut it was the second song on the b side so again it's way down in the mix it was not released as a single the album didn't chart, but I wanted to ask you, there's only three pieces in this song and maybe in the entire record, but I'm wondering in this particular song and in that recording of it, you mentioned the melody. Is that your favorite musical aspect? 
of it or is there instrumental uh, stuff well, that no, also it's, it's part of it like i was saying before you got to have a good melody to draw you in to the lyrics to hear the lyrics and of course he was a master at that i just like the bounciness there was no bridge in that song in fact there was two or three verses and then they had a little instrumental break that wasn't all that challenging if terry clemens or red shea had been in the, the mix probably could have done some flashy stuff on that musical break that they did. And not being that great of a guitar player myself, it was very easy for me to figure that out in my cover. It was just a good song. Yeah. And it didn't need a whole lot of elaborate instrumentation. I mean, the songs are really where the chord is cut, right? I mean, you can hire all of the hotshot guitars in the world. You can keyboard this and process that and synthesize the other which they did later on in a lot of his music. Which they? they tried to do, yeah, and yes. not with great success. But yeah. if you don't have the song, you know, you've really got nothing. I mean, to me, it is the melody. It's not the instrumentation. Because the melody is very easy to remember, and it's not overly grandiose. I haven't looked at the range of it. What's the highest note? What's the lowest note? No, but, but he's not showing off his vocal chops, and he's not even trying to communicate any particular emotion in the melody except kind of a sad quietness. So it sticks in your head. And I think that's also another tribute to him and his musical sensibilities. And if you think about it, Michael, the United Artists days, it was mostly acoustic. And that was the folk genre at the time. As James Taylor said, the folk scare of the 60s. Uh, <laughs> so most of the stuff was just very acoustical. It wasn't until reprise when he joined Reprise, that they started adding strings and, and that kind of stuff. What was the other one? Did she mention my name? That's one of the other name, uh, other albums, too, if I remember right. Wasn't that one of the other albums? Oh, The Mountains in Marion. Remember that song? That was another one that I really liked, and it kind of had the same vein as 16 Miles as far as his melody and writing. I don't want to say that he's ever derivative of himself, but he was also caught up in the folk scare, the folk movement, whatever you want to call it. And so that was the game that was played by a lot of artists, especially, and probably the lead on that was Bob Dylan. But there were certainly others that were in that mix at the time. As we alluded to, okay, there were only three artists listed on this. Lightfoot was playing guitar. David Ree was playing second guitar. Bill Lee was playing bass. And it makes me wonder if... UA pretty much said, look, these are the people you're going to play with and don't give us any crap for it. Well, um, no, yeah, that's probably what happened. Bill Lee played on a lot of the early Peter, Paul, and Mary albums as well. So he was probably the session musician. It didn't say where that was recorded. I would assume that was probably recorded in New York. I believe it was. I'm not absolutely certain, yeah. but that sounds about right. Yeah. He's only performed this song one time. And again, it blows my mind that he's only done it once. And he did that at La Cave in Cleveland, Ohio on May 8th, 1965. And he, I think, took that train trip in May of 1965. So he may have just written it. I mean, the ink might have been barely dry when he performed that song and then he never performed it again. You amaze me, Michael, that you can even find out this information. Again, when I was doing research, I went to the uh, Setlist website, 
couldn't find anything on it. How did you find that out? Well, actually, I did find it on set list. Oh, you did? Okay. I did. Yeah. And he only performed it once. Now, set list is not necessarily perfect, but it's as good a guide as I think it probably exists out there that's accessible unless someone has been following Gordon Lightfoot around for 60 years and making notes on every single gig that he's done. And I kind of doubt it. And actually, I would kind of wonder if Gordon would feel comfortable (laughs) somebody's talking him like that. Probably Um, not. Very humble person. My belief is Gordon was very humble to all the accolades that he's gotten throughout his career. Yeah. uh, He doesn't consider himself a superstar. He is, but he doesn't, you know, look for that. There was a bootleg recording of that concert in Cleveland, and he really absolutely stepped all over himself when he was opening this. He said, and I'm quoting him directly, this is from the Jennings book, he said, if you want to go, you can. I'll probably do a long set. I have this thing. I always like the audience to be interested. Usually they're not always interested. If you do a long set, you kind of feel that you're... I put my foot in my mouth there, end quote. So he was probably nervous, maybe because this was the first time he'd played the song. It was the only time he was going to play the song in public. But the other thing about that is that he was apparently opening for Odetta that night and maybe at some other gigs. And I think to myself, what an intriguing combination. Gordon Lightfoot opening for Odetta wouldn't you have loved to hear conversations between those two after the show? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that was the other thing about Gordon, and I think we all agree. Gordon had a really good set of pipes. I mean, he was a singer. And timbre in his voice, there was nobody like him. And when you mentioned Odetta, I was watching a Peter, Paul, and Mary from, I think it was a 65 Newport Folk Festival. And and so they're all gathered at the end of the festival and everybody's singing. And Odetta was right in front of everybody. And man, she was just belting it. She had quite a voice herself. Oh, no doubt. Um, And she came from a gospel background, if I'm not mistaken, where if you can't project into a church, you're not going to make it. You really have to have the pipes. And so I think they probably appreciated that about each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are seven covers that I could find of this song, and one of them may have been the one that you alluded to. Brandywine Singers, J.P. Cornier, Lyle Crosby, Bonnie Dobson, Mark Ellington, Tony Rice, and the White Knight Instrumental. So it may have been Bonnie Dobson that changed the lyric there. Yes, and the Rice cover was really well done, too. Tony Rice, the best cover I've heard was his cover. Okay. No, that was the next question that I had, you know, whether you'd heard any of them. Is there anybody that you wish would do this song? I mean, as we're sitting here in 2023, is there anybody you think, you know, I think that person could do an okay job on it? Probably James Taylor. I can hear it. Yeah. I can hear it. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but I like the idea. I also think that maybe not today, but not that long ago, I think Willie Nelson might have been able to do an okay job on it. Yeah. Or it could be a really good country song. And any of the Nashville artists, any of those guys could probably do that song. And unfortunately, probably a lot of them never heard the song before, but I think they could do it. It's that good of a song. Yeah. And I'd have to think about it. And maybe that'll be on my album program where, you know, we talk about, okay, who could do this song? 
Will, I want to talk about your own exploits as a musician. Do you have any other thoughts on this song in particular before we talk about you? Well, I, again, it's an honor to just to be able to talk with you about this, about the song. And, you know, I go back to why did I record it? And Michael, I just like the song. If a song hits me, because in order to learn a song, you have to spend a lot of time getting things right and stuff. And by the time you get done recording it, it's going on and on in your brain for the next week. Sometimes when you're learning a song, it was just a fun song to do. I posted it on Facebook to some of the Gordon, the Lightfoot groups and stuff. And pleasantly surprised, I got a lot of nice compliments from it. In fact, one person told me to give it to you so I could be on your show. And here we are. And here we are. That's right. That's right. So tell us a little bit about your own music. I mean, you've been a performer and a singer and a songwriter for quite some time. So maybe tell us a little bit about where you're going to be appearing. You talked about the folk tribute concert, what genre you play, where people can find you online. So this is basically your elevator pitch to talk about Will Kruger Incorporated. Well, you can find uh, my schedule on willkruger.com got everything listed there. Got a couple of local shows I'm doing. I'm doing one here in Merrillville for the uh, Animal uh, Welfare Society. I think that's the next one I have. And then there's uh, in Pigeon Fords, there's a listening room, which is specifically for songwriters. And I'm joining uh, three other millennials. So I'll be the old guy on stage, you know, uh, and we're going to be doing original songs. And then uh, I've got in August, I have two shows where I'm doing the uh, songwriter legend show. So I'll be mixing not only Gore's music, but the James Taylor, Gordon Lightfoot, Paul Simon in John Denver. And then every year they ask me to go up to Fish Creek, Wisconsin, which is way up in Door County, which is that peninsula that goes up into the Great Lakes uh, up in Wisconsin. And I, uh, every year there, they've had me back there doing my John Denver tribute, and as well as Gordon. But I got to say, I do more of John's songs than I do anybody else. But music has been great. And since we've moved down here in East Tennessee, the amount of songwriters down here, and I have been embraced by the people down here, too. So I've made a lot of musical friends, and we're very happy down here in Tennessee. That's great. Will Kruger, this has been a lot of fun. It's nice to actually have a conversation about songs where we're asking each other questions. And this was a lot of fun. And I hope to have you back on the show again real soon. Well, that would be my pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. And I'll be listening to your upcoming podcast, as I always do. And the best of luck to you as well. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode will feature my guest Michael Hill from Aurelia, Ontario, and that is the home of Gordon Lightfoot and Stephen Leacock. 
He and I will be discussing Saturday Clothes from the Sit Down Young Stranger album. That show will be coming out in early to mid-April. Until then, for Will Kruger, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time.